Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to Coronapod. In this show, we're going to bring you nature's take on the latest COVID-19 developments. And we'll be speaking to experts around the world about research during the pandemic. We're entering a new era now. We have new COVID strategies. There's some new unknowns and we've got a vaccine. Hello and welcome to Coronapod. We are now back and on the line with me is Coronapod favourite, Amy Maxman. Amy, how are you? I'm good and I'm really happy to be back. Yeah, it's been a little bit longer of a break than we were expecting, in large part because I have been very sick. But not with COVID, it seems. As hard as I tested and tested and got PCR tests and lateral flow tests, they they refused to be positive, but I still had some kind of horrible flu, which I think is maybe not actually that surprising. We've published a story about that this week, about how other respiratory viruses and respiratory infections may be on the rise. It surprises me because I feel like everybody's just being so careful now, maybe in ways they weren't before to like, you know, not touch a doorknob and stick their finger in their mouth or something. Yeah, which used to be my favourite pastime, actually. And now I don't do that ever. (laughs) But anyway, I'm better now, which is good. So we are back on Coronapod. um, And we're going to talk about something that I actually said in a previous Coronapod that I expected was coming, which was vaccine manufacturing, but specifically manufacturing of vaccines in the global south. It's a story that you've been reporting for a little while. Amy, can you tell us why it is that you wanted to start reporting the story in the first place? Yeah, so it's, yeah, I had been working on this for more than a month. I think uh, the reason I started working on it is because it became clear if you talk with people who follow vaccines, just plain old vaccine forecasting, we needed more vaccines. There's a supply issue. And largely, the problem is that the vaccines are so unevenly distributed, with a huge majority of them going just to wealthy countries. So that's how I started looking into vaccine manufacturing. And, you know, I reported for a month and it kind of came to a head. Yeah, for sure. The primary thing is just physically enough vaccines being made to get to the number of people that need vaccines around the world. But it's not just a case of more manufacturing plants making more vaccines. It also is important where those plants are in the world. And that's a big part of your story, right? Yeah, that's sort of what I learned, you know, pretty quickly when I started reporting this. It's not an accident that the vaccines that you and I have, you know, you in the UK and me in the US, those vaccines come from companies that are based in Europe or the US. That's Pfizer and Moderna with the mRNA vaccines. It's Johnson & Johnson with the ViroVector vaccine. There's AstraZeneca, which is based in Europe. And 
there is also BioNTech, which licensed their product to Pfizer, but is still responsible for those vaccines in Germany. So that's what we use, right? And there are other vaccines. There are the vaccines produced by China and Chinese companies. Those are inactivated virus vaccines. And there's another viral vector vaccine that was developed in Russia by the Russian government. And that's Sputnik V. And so those vaccines that are produced largely in the US and in Europe, and then the vaccines produced in China and then in Russia, those are the vaccines that are also supplying those regions. Those are the predominant vaccines you find in the US, in China, in Europe and in Russia. But what about the rest of the world, right? So there's an awful lot more world than those places I just mentioned. Which of those vaccines, if any, are getting to those people? Yeah, so the vaccine developed by AstraZeneca and the University of Oxford, they sort of licensed their manufacturing to a a number of different producers, a major one being the Serum Institute in India. So that's producing most of the vaccines for India. Russia and China have both licensed their vaccines broadly, and they're also selling their vaccines to many developing countries. So a third of the vaccines in the developing world are from China manufacturers. Those are the inactivated virus vaccines. mRNA vaccines really aren't going. I mean, yes, there have been shipments. So they they have reached, I think, something like more than 100 countries. But if you look at the number of doses just by countries, most of the doses, by and large, are bought by rich countries. So they really aren't being distributed everywhere. Right, absolutely. And then on the whole, there's just a lot of countries that just don't have a lot of vaccines. I mean, just to start with, you know, the reason I was interested in this question about manufacturing was because as the years moved on, I guess I'm just sort of appalled to think there was this massive race to make vaccines an incredibly short amount of time, a huge scientific feat. All of us who love science are impressed by it, but there hasn't been a huge move to make sure these vaccines get everywhere. Um, Even, you know, when I looked just about a week ago, less than 1% of people in low-income countries are fully vaccinated and only 10% in lower-middle-income countries which is really very pathetic. And I guess I'm kind of keen to distinguish here between two slightly different but very related concepts. And one is vaccine distribution and the other one is vaccine manufacture. And there's a reason we're talking about manufacture specifically here, right? Yeah. Because there's a very big difference between producing a whole bunch of vaccines in you know, the United States and then donating or shipping some of those vaccines to another country versus licensing your product. You know, if Pfizer were to license their product, for example, to be manufactured by a manufacturing plant in the country that is going to eventually distribute it. Yeah, you know, talking with a lot of people about this, there's some kind of overall sort of, you know, lessons that have come out. One is that charity isn't going to fix this problem. In case there was uncertainty before, it is very clear that countries behave nationalistically in a pandemic. I think maybe there were some dreamy thoughts that the world would come together in solidarity. And I think that's sort of out the window, frankly. And that's what researchers say as well, exemplified by a lot of countries now, including the U.S., you know, approving of boosters when a lot of countries don't have first doses. So this idea that we're just going to rely on charity is falling apart. It's good. And so I think nobody I talk to says, let's stop donating, especially donations are very fast right now. Let's take the vaccines we have and get them to other places. So donations are great, but it just simply will not be enough. So there needs to be more manufacturing. And the second thing that, you know, I I spoke to a researcher at Duke University who's tracking vaccines. The second thing that she's found is we need to have regional manufacturing. So it doesn't mean that every country needs to be making its own, but there has to be regional manufacturing 
manufacturing, and that's for a few reasons. One is if you have more plants making vaccines, hopefully there's a little bit more price competition on the market. Maybe some of the other manufacturers can start selling those vaccines for lower prices for, say, you know, lower income countries. At the moment, that's what India does. India produces most of the vaccines used in the developing world. Also, there is manufacturers, say, in India that are accustomed to saying we need to have a large scale and our goal is to produce a ton and be able to sell our products, you know, at a lower price. So one, there's that reason. The second one is countries can actually control import and export. They can control trade. So that's another reason why regional manufacturing is so important. Just knowing that in a pinch, countries could block exports. So people are saying manufacturers, at least in some of the countries, say like South Africa and Brazil and India and Thailand or Malaysia that are able to produce vaccines because they have some capacity, those places should be making them. That would be a more secure world both in this pandemic and, you know, moving forward to other outbreaks. And that makes an awful lot of sense. I suppose the the limiting factor here for all of this manufacturing capacity around the world is that you don't just need a manufacturing plant, you need to have the specific recipe for what it is you need to make. And often that means you need to have that licensed by the people that created it. So by Pfizer, by Moderna, by AstraZeneca and so on. And that's where the sticking point seems to be coming because there seems to be a bit of a kind of a push-pull between the current big vaccine designers, I suppose patent holders, and the manufacturers about how practical it is to actually produce an mRNA vaccine in a vaccine manufacturing plant in India, say. Yeah, so there's a lot, you know, there's a few steps here. We might have talked, I feel like, a while back about this push to sort of uh, wave patents on vaccines that came up at the World Trade Organization meeting last May to say, let's wave all of the intellectual property covering COVID vaccines. But here's the truth with that. Even if that were to happen, it would take a long time for other companies to sort of like reverse engineer how to make these vaccines. Now that happens with other drugs, but it can take years. And so if our goal, if our shared world goal is getting people vaccinated as soon as possible, that's not a fast approach. It's not saying that waivers don't matter. So I think a lot of people will say, well, therefore the waivers aren't important. The reason why the waivers would be important is that there's multiple patents covering these things. So all of those individual negotiations might take a long time. So the idea is, okay, if they were just waived, that is one more step that's out of the way. But that's just the first step. You know, the second step is the recipe, which includes, you know, the very, very specific ingredients to make the vaccines and also kind of the knowledge on how to do it. And that could be even harder to replicate without somebody holding the hand of a manufacturer. In many cases, what we're not necessarily talking about here is just like making, like releasing patents on these things. What we're talking about is these pharmaceutical companies partnering and licensing their product to other manufacturers so they can produce them, for which they would get royalties, right? Exactly, right. So if it was just like a blanket waiver on all intellectual property, yeah, that would that would seem to be like, okay, you know, anybody could try and make them. But I think everyone I spoke with feels like really having the participation of the companies is ideal. So partnering is ideal. You know, another thing that WHO is pushing for is to have, you know, Moderna or Pfizer or J&J work with the medicines patent pool. That's a UN organization. And what they do, and they've done this for drugs in the past, is they identify manufacturers that already produce vaccines or complex drugs. 
that go through sort of quality control processes. So they select particular manufacturers that might be really good at doing this. And then they try and work out all the regulations within that country. They try and figure out what's going to be a licensing agreement that pharmaceutical companies, the ones that developed the original product, will be able to get some sort of royalty out of that they're also happy with. Yeah. And so that really begs the question for me, okay, so there's groups here that are offering to sort out all of those regulatory problems, offering to sort out licensing agreements. The pharmaceutical companies, it's surely in their interest to produce more of their vaccine and to help vaccinate more of the world. So why on earth is this not happening, right? Why are the pharma companies not engaging with all of these groups that are trying to help build more manufacturing processes elsewhere in the world? So I'll tell you, you know, like I I reached out to the pharmaceutical companies we're talking about, and I also reached out to pharmaceutical trade groups, and they have a list of reasons for why they're not interested. One of them is they say there are fears about quality control, and let's be honest, quality control is really difficult. You're giving people who are healthy these vaccines. I mean, in general, you want to be really careful with quality control, and that can happen anywhere in the world. You can have a company that doesn't have a good manufacturing process and you get contamination or something else that can damage your product, and they feel like that would be very damaging. They also say that another issue is there could be shortages in supplies that would make it difficult to have more manufacturers step in. They also say it's very complex to make these products. They give estimates of dates. It would take more than 12 to 18 months, is what the CEO of Moderna said, to have another company try and do this. So therefore, if we're talking about it's not going to be ready for two years, why why go ahead and do this? Because in two years, we're, we're going to have ramped up our own manufacturing, and therefore, there's no need for other companies to do this. And do those kind of concerns hold water if you speak to the people that are on the other side of this kind of debate, I suppose? So the first thing that people who are on the side of ramping up manufacturing will point out is that there's a lot of money at stake here. So if a company can maintain its monopoly, it's going to make more money and they have a direct financial interest in this. Already, it looks like Moderna and Pfizer are on track to bring in more than 53 billion in revenue this year, just from the COVID vaccines. Also, they're hopeful that mRNA vaccines can be a platform to make vaccines for all sorts of things like cancer and HIV. So therefore, teaching another company how to make an mRNA vaccine compromises their hold on the field. So they have a very strong incentive to not license this out broadly. None of the companies I spoke to said this is why, but this is something that people you know, point out pretty easily. But as for the other reasons, one, there's this issue about quality control. You know, somebody from the UN's medicines patent pool, she told me, you know, she always hears this thing. It comes down to quality assurance. And she gets exasperated because she says, we've got people in our group who have worked at the leading pharmaceutical firms. We understand that quality control is really important. And she says, it's not like we give licenses to manufacturers in a garage. So she sort of pushes back against this idea about quality control being the complete barrier. As for the time it takes to do this technology transfer process and teach a company that knows how to do it, how to do it. I think what's one thing that's hard for me personally is like, we haven't seen a ton of this. So it's kind of hard to say how long it takes. I don't want to trivialize it. For example, Johnson & Johnson has partnered with one drug manufacturer in India called Biological E. 
and somebody who helps lead that company, she told me, you know, it's taken roughly around seven months to just do the technology transfer and also, you know, to ramp up the supplies and all of that to get them ready to produce Johnson & Johnson vaccine. So it does take time. But as for it taking more than 12 to 18 months, as the CEO of Moderna said, that's where people do push back. We know that BioNTech, for example, licensed their technology to Pfizer, and it didn't take 18 months. We know that Moderna did their final clinical trials and scaled up their production within nine months. So the idea that it's going to take you know, some other company 18 months to do it, people sort of question whether that calculus is correct. I suppose especially because when Moderna did it, when Pfizer did it, they didn't necessarily have someone teaching them how to do it in the first place. They were finding out for the first time, right? Yeah, exactly. So that's why there's pushback there. And it's a careful balance. I think, you know, nobody wants to say this is simple. So I think even best estimates are, it's very fair to say it would take six months at minimum. So, you know, it's not like Scaling up manufacturing helps tomorrow. Well, in the meantime, you know, outside of Pfizer and Moderna, some of the other current vaccines like Sputnik V, like some of the Chinese vaccines and like AstraZeneca are being licensed elsewhere. Is it possible that those manufacturing processes will continue to expand? You know, is, are we going to see more Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine being produced in India or elsewhere in the global south? I mean, yes, the Serum Institute has massively scaled up how much AstraZeneca vaccine it's making. But, you know, the researchers I spoke to aren't really holding their breath for these vaccines. Apparently, you know, AstraZeneca might not be the fastest thing to produce. The inactivated virus vaccines, the ones from China, those are also difficult to produce. Also, there's questions about how effective they are, you know, and it could be really tricky. There's countries that already are saying, you know, you can't travel. Or I know here in the U.S., if there's a vaccine mandate at colleges. They're not allowed to have, you know, say the Sinopharm vaccine. They'll have to be revaccinated here. So I think there's a lot of pressure to move away from the vaccines from China. So I think the thing that the researchers I spoke with, the people who are saying, gosh, there's not a lot of traction with Moderna, with Johnson & Johnson, with BioNTech, the people who are kind of skeptical about that moving forward and also knowing that even if there was movement, we're talking about six months plus, some of them are kind of holding out hope for a couple of vaccines that are in phase three trials now where we should have results in the next few months. The vaccines I heard most about were protein subunit vaccines. Those are in phase three trials now from a couple of companies. One of them is a vaccine that was developed in Texas at Texas Children's Hospital and Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. And one of the companies making it is Biological E, that one that's also making Johnson & Johnson in India. They're in phase three trials now. So one reason why people like these protein subunit vaccines is that you can make them in vats of cells like yeast, where number one, there's experience making drugs within yeast. So yeast, I guess, churn out a large quantity of these peptides. So the idea is you could scale them up really well. So that's some people are hoping if these vaccines end up being effective, if we find out in phase two trials that they're effective, they might be really easy to scale, unlike the ones from China or unlike the viral vector vaccines. These could be a lot easier to make. And the other reason is the one from Texas that's being produced in, in India now too, Peter Hotez, who's one of the researchers who's helping to develop their vaccine, says that he's not going to put patent restrictions on it because his goal is really making sure that there can be billions of doses that are made for the developing world. 
So that's sort of a different, a change in ideology. There's other vaccines that have that approach. I think Cuba's vaccines also do as well. So there's a lot of people who are, are really at this point pinning their hopes on these ones in development. It's a bit sadder because it's going to take longer. They have to finish clinical trials and they have to be approved and all of that. But that's what they think might be the fastest way forward. And I suppose right now there's no guarantee that the result of that clinical trial is going to be, yeah, great, safe and effective vaccine. You know, we still need to wait and find out. It's such an uns- I mean, it's so hard to report these issues because honestly, it, it changes all the time. It's very hard to say what the future will look like. One thing that the big pharmaceutical agencies are saying is that they're ramping up their own manufacturing capability, and they're just going to sell that out to other countries around the world. Is that not a thing that could work? Do we need these regional manufacturing processes as well? Is it not just a solution for Pfizer in their own current manufacturing plants to produce billions and billions and billions and billions of vaccines and just sell them across the world? It is true. They are ramping up their manufacturing. And, you know, Pfizer told me that they are looking into more partnerships, so that may happen more in the future. So we might be seeing more than that. So this could happen. I think what a lot of people I spoke with might say back is, what's the guarantee that these companies that control the supply, what's the guarantee that suddenly now they're going to be sold to lower and lower middle income countries? Um, You know, just like we've seen, most mRNA vaccines have largely gone to wealthy countries. Wealthy countries have more purchasing power. And we know that there's going to be boosters, which surely will come out of the global supply, no matter what the White House says about that issue. There's a finite number, you know, boosters in one place or doses not in another place until we have a surplus of mRNA vaccines. Amy, thank you so much for joining me. Um, I'm sure there's a lot more we're going to be talking about over the the next couple of years, coming months. Was that a slip about how long I think the pandemic's going to last? I think it was, and it made me feel a little bit like my stomach sank when I Who said next couple of years. Who knew that Coronapod was going to be permanent? <laughs> it's going to become we... you know, Coronapod SARS-CoV-4 next. Oh, no. Um, anyway, thanks, Amy. Thank you so much. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.